That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. And we're back in live. I'm Jimmy Krupka. This is Ski Racing This Week. Okay, I'll cut right to the chase. Last week, I mentioned the protests going on in this country and around the world, and I also mentioned the lack of diversity in ski racing. If you're a loyal listener, you know that I often brainstorm out loud in the show and that sometimes my ideas don't come to fruition. But I'm actually quite proud to announce that this is one thing I did follow up on. Today will be a conversation, in light of current events, about the lack of diversity in ski racing. I've got a great show for you today. First, we meet Andre Horton, the first black American named to the U.S. ski team back in 2001. He represented the United States for several years and was a particularly adept speed skier. Then we get a hold of Benjamin Alexander, a Jamaican man who learned to ski only recently, but is making a real attempt at qualifying for the 22 Winter Olympics. Before we get to them, however, I want to read you two statements. These are for context. Just so you know what people are saying what's going on. The first is from Tiger Shaw, president of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Quote, as a lifelong member of the ski industry, I admit that it is easy to feel isolated from discrimination, racism, and inequality. The mountains are our safe haven and provide a convenient block from the broader pain and suffering of our world. I regret my lack of attention. As an industry, much work remains in creating wider access to the mountains. It is no secret that U.S. Ski and Snowboard and our sports are historically white, and despite many great programs in place, and he, and he goes on to talk a bit about all that, um, and ends with, we will lead by action and use our influence to help others. Now, I'm going to skip down to his action points. Locally, we will open the lines of communication with Park City and Salt Lake City-based nonprofits to introduce underrepresented youth to winter sports and support the fight for racial justice. Two, nationally, we will work with our member clubs to promote inclusivity at the grassroots level. Many clubs are extraordinary in this aspect, but many also need our leadership. Three, additionally, nationally, we will open the lines of communication with organizations that work to promote the sports of skiing and snowboarding to underrepresented youth to understand how we can affect change. And then his last three steps involve promoting workplace diversity at UN Ski and Snowboard. You can find the whole statement on Instagram, and I think it's probably on Facebook too, and uh probably on the U.S. Ski and Snowboard site. So hearing that statement, now it's up to the community to keep U.S. Ski and Snowboard accountable in the months and years to come. The second statement comes from Ski Racing Media and uh, was re- released on social media as well. You know, As I mentioned before, I'm reading these so you have some context and background as to what the big organizations in ski racing are saying. I think it's important to note here that As we all know, and as we'll discuss with our guests, racial issues are not something new, but current events have brought everything to the forefront. And I think it's a good thing to be talking about all this. Anyway, quote, Ski racing media opposes discrimination of any kind and the use of unnecessary force by police. We support efforts to make the world a safer place for all people. Over the past week, we have been listening and have engaged in conversations about the lack of diversity in our sport. We know we can do better. As part of that effort, Ski Racing Media will support Winter for Kids with an initial $5,000 donation. 
So Winter for Kids is a nonprofit organization working to make winter sports more more diverse and inclusive um, by, quote, bringing the joy of sport and the outdoors to the underprivileged youth in the tri-state area. So that's like New Jersey and New York, you know. For more information, go to winterforkids.org, and that's the, the number four. Now, I did not write that, so if you have any comments about that, uh, don't direct them towards me. I'm sure I can answer your questions, um, but I was not actively involved in writing that statement, but I figured I, I might as well say it on the air. Now, as we move on, I want to thank Brett for suggesting Andre Horton as a guest and a certain Jeremy for putting me in contact with Andre. Andre Horton, without further ado. Andre Horton, thanks for being on the show. Uh, no problem. Glad, glad to be here. Super excited. Awesome. So you have an incredible story. Um, I, I did some research on you um, and Uh-oh. found a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, you don't have a Wikipedia page, but you do have a lot of articles written about you. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good stuff. Oh, no, I, was in a, I was in a couple heists. and No, I wasn't in any heist. No, it should be good, I hope. Yeah. yeah. No, your name didn't come across in any heist. Um, so to start things off, I just, um, I know you, I think you were born in Alaska, right? And, and, uh, so skiing must've come pretty, uh, naturally in, in terms of like, um, how'd you get into skiing basically? Well, Alaska is the, uh, winter sports Mecca for sure. Cause it's mm-hmm. a lot of snow and, uh, <clears throat> we get it fairly early sometimes until recently. Uh, so I started out at Nordic skiing first really i did nordic ski hilltop ski area which is like right up the road from where i grew up and then they also had nordic ski jumps there which are actually pretty rare there's not that many ski jump facilities in the country uh so i started doing nordic skiing and nordic jumping <laughs> that's and i did that when i was probably seven years old i uh-huh. uh, started off in the 15 and i moved up to the 30 millimeter jumps and that's what i did then i did cross-country skiing in the afternoon i never really tried alpine because both my parents were school teachers and that was a cost constraint with passes and all that um but once i realized there's a chairlift <laughs> i was like all right yeah i can up and then use gravity on the way down this is sweet uh so i had you know odd end jobs here and there even as a kid with my in-laws and whoever i could find because i wanted to have enough money to buy a ski pass so I get a ski pass for this area called Hilltop Ski Area. It's super small. Uh-huh. And uh, at, me and my sister would go up there. We were homeschooled earlier on. So I'd get up at 7, finish my studies at like 11 in the morning, and then I'd ski till like 6 in the night <laughs> as a kid. That's awesome. Uh, just rip doing loops as much as I can. I still did some Nordic jumping because Nordic jumping is crazy. Like you go down that ramp and you just jump. And you're like, what are we doing? <laughs> as high as you can. Uh, but – I, that's how I got into ski racing. Um, and the funny side note too, is that my mother is a Caucasian. She's white and she grew up in Idaho and my dad is black and he is from Georgia. Um, how they met is an entire another podcast. Uh, sure, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, my mom was a skier, skied at Sun Valley and all over Idaho. So she kind of distilled in me the, the culture of skiing as I call it mm-hmm. and enjoying the winter sports. Um, so every, everything in Alaska, we get dog mushing, hockey, you name it, yeah. but skiing, racing, skiing is what stuck out to me the most. Gotcha. And then at what point yeah. were you like, obviously you were probably hooked, you know, the whole not having to, uh, uh, you know, the chairlift thing and going faster, but I, when, when were you yeah. like, uh, oh, I, I kind of want to do something in ski racing. Um, I like 
naturally I'm a competitive person. Um, I don't come across initially as competitive, but the idea of the clock, I loved it. Like uh-huh. it wasn't, you know, people are like, well, p- ski racers just can't do a team sports. That's why they do ski racing. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I love soccer and baseball and basketball and all the conventional sports, but uh, skiing offered me uh, some peace. Like it's a very peaceful sport. If you think about it, you ride the chairlift at 6 a.m. You're all by yourself. Yeah. And you get this time with yourself to, in solace to really focus on goals, your life. Uh, there's a spiritual aspect, in my opinion, to ski racing where you're just on the lift in the middle of nowhere at 10,000 feet. It is, in my opinion, it's a very heavenly experience. And you can't beat that. And that's what I think every skier enjoys is being in the mountains in the quiet, riding a chairlift. Um, <clears throat> so I digress a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh, it was just a fun experience. You get on a chairlift and like look down, you're all up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You get off and it's complete gravity. And you let gravity do this crazy thing where you're just nuking. Like you're going fast or you go slow if you want. But the idea of gravity and just letting it do its thing and then having a race around time and being efficient in great gates and in a course and tactics and it's a whole entire sport that i don't think everyone really thinks about they can think that oh you just go down as fast as you can around these red gates I'm like well there's a lot more to it than that yeah there's tactics they're training um it's a whole sport that i don't think not everybody understands but i i did and i loved it and i got totally hooked from seven years on and like i did some winter sports other sports but i love skiing I just That's loved cool. it, and it was cool. Yeah. Could not get enough of it. <laughs> well, that the way you describe it, the gravity and, and the solitude, I think that's a, a beautiful description. Um, so when so you you were the in in two thousand one, you were named to the U.S. Alpine team. I think the development team, right? Yeah. And you were the um, first first African American to be so, and and maybe the the um, the only since. Well, there's a. Uh... It depends. On, there's Bonnie St. Jane, and there's there's some people that were on the disabled um, okay. Olympic, like Ralph Green, um, and then uh, Seba. I think she lived or she worked. She was from the Virgin Islands. Um, uh, I mean, at least she was one of the first people of color to I think make it to the Olympics. But she was. I always say, well, she was from the Virgin Islands. That's different. <laughs> but but uh, yeah. nonetheless, um, I think I was the first Black American able-bodied. Uh, skier to mm-hmm. make the national team mm-hmm. and my sister also made it concurrently as well that she was the first female mm-hmm. and it's pretty crazy that both siblings would make it like that but that's that's what occurred that's cool um it's very rare one in a million for sure yeah but, i think that's cool it must yeah. it must have been um well, so did you and your sister because you guys went to mount bachelor right to start doing some serious training before you made before you qualified for the team yeah, we like we'll see what happened is I left I graduated from high school and I actually went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So I was at the Jackson Hole Ski Club for uh two years before I was named to the team. And the crazy okay. thing is all my buddies were like, You're gonna go to Wyoming? That's crazy, man. And <laughs> uh what, what I did is research because I wanted to have a PG year and uh I researched where everyone was going because I know iron sharpens iron mm-hmm. and I wanted to go somewhere where I was gonna be around a bunch of PGs that were that had big aspirations. So I moved to Jacksonville, Wyoming, and so I was part of the Jacksonville Ski Club for two years before I was named. And then after that, I was in Park City for some time before I moved to Mount Bachelor, where I was like, that was my home program when I was on the team. And, and gotcha. near my end of my I was at Mount Bachelor. But I always had connections with Mount Bachelor because PNSA is where all Alaskans, you know, those, that's like our brotherhood of sorts. We go back and forth between Seattle and that area to ski. So that's why uh, the Pacific Northwest is where I 
definitely hung my hat near the end for sure. Gotcha. Um, so I know that you, an old coach of mine, Jeremy Trance, who also known as Worm, um, and uh, maybe sometime <laughs> spent with uh, Justin Johnson too. I know you guys mm-hmm. probably had some fun uh, during your years in the on the U.S. team. Do you have any uh, good stories for us? Man. And then there's like statute of limitations, right? I think we're getting up on that. <laughs> Probably. Um, like, I would have to say like the ski racing it creates a bittersweet experience for me already because I think um, if I had to look back on my career, I you create relationships in ski racing that last a lifetime because yeah. you're together so much all the time, traveling the world together, and you're experiencing failure a lot. Because not everyone wins a race every day, mm-hmm. um, and when you do win, you celebrate and you win. You celebrate those victories with these these uh, these kindred spirits you you meet on the way um, through your career. So like Justin Johnson and like uh, Jeremy Transu, like the list goes on and on um, of these people I traveled with. And some of these stories, man, are just like us hustling. Like we didn't we had budget problems, so some of us wouldn't make the trip, but we'd get on the plane anyway. And like <laughs> I'm gonna make it happen. <laughs> and we get over there, and then just dealing with uh, European economics and like the culture there was just an absolute blast. Yeah. And I think if you're in your twenties, like like yourself, like it is a it's a story of a lifetime that it it I can almost tell anyone who makes a national ski team nowadays that you will have a very difficult time in retirement. The reason is, is like, once you retire, you realize, man, I just, you just lived a dream. You lived your goals and it's hard to really find anything that comes, comes close to being on the, on a national ski team. Yeah. Like I traveled the world with these guys, these 12 guys, the development team of sorts, 10 to 12. And we made incredible relationships that, um, I can't really quite match. Uh, for instance, I saw Jeremy Transu this winter for the first time in 10 years, I believe. And we picked up where we left off and it was unreal how in a matter of a few minutes we were like telling jokes about stuff we did back in the day and we wanted to hang out and, uh, be, and so the kindreds, the kindred relationship we had never, never vanished. And I run into people like I went to Libby Ludlow's wedding a couple of years ago. I ran into Lindsey Vaughn like this winter and it's this weird situation where you see them and you walk up to each other and you're like, how you doing? And it's not awkward. Yeah. It, they're not foreign to you. They're just like kindreds. And so some of these these people you run into, it's it's the coolest part about ski racing is the relationships you build. And sometimes when you retire, you walk away. You don't have that anymore. I get it. But I still keep in contact with almost everybody I skied with, uh, Jeremy included. And we go back and forth. And, and we do life together now. Like he's got kids. I got kids. Um, and, and we've all we've moved on from our competitive years, but our relationships remain. That is cool. I um, and I, and I understand that. Um, and so what did you do when you retired? Um, now that we're on the subject, um, what, was it hard and, and, and what, what are you doing now? And, and what did you do to kind of fill that void? Well, um, I, I always like to, uh, provide a little bit of vulnerability to some people that maybe they're not accustomed to, um, <laughs> is the fact that when I retired, I actually ended up going to counseling or therapy. People are like, oh my goodness, Andre, what's wrong with you? And I was like, well, there's nothing really wrong with me except if you work as hard as you can every day, all day long in your adolescence, in your uh, early 20s to make a, a dream a reality and you get there, 
you're on the national team, you're competing and you're on a global, you're a world-class athlete and then you retire and then everything just stops. That's actually hard for some people to come to terms with. And I think a lot of people um, retire from the sport and then just move on and don't recognize that there's some loss you have. You, mm-hmm. you, 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 you suffer some loss being like, man, I was, I was best in the world. You know, we had the U S ski team had a bumper sticker for a long time or our logo was best in the world. Yeah. So if you were part of that cadre, of best in the world and now you're working in a cubicle somewhere you look out the window and you're you're just lot you're just really i wouldn't say depressed you're just like man i was best in the world now i'm in a cubicle with yeah. everybody else <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right it, and it's hard to come to terms with that sometimes and um so what i recognize is, is when i went to counseling or therapy my therapist is like man you gotta mourn your lot i'm like that sounds really heavy dude i don't want you to mourn my lot but you know and then he's looking at me and i and i started tearing up and I was like, man, am I crying? He's like, yeah, you're crying, bro. <laughs> and I had to mourn the loss that I retired. And I loved the sport so much. And I loved the friends. And I, I worked so hard to accomplish so many things, which I did. And just walking away from it wasn't just an easy thing to do. And I, and I realized there's a lot of athletes that are like that. They just walk away. And I'm like, man, you got a big void to fill. And moving on to life like the rest of your you know, conventional friends or your, uh, your contemporaries is not going to be easy. Um, so anyway, with, with all that to say, I recognize that ski racing is such a massive part of my life, and I wanted to leverage everything I, I learned and garnered from the sport and bring it into my next career, my next season in life. And uh, <clears throat> so retirement, I, I did it, you know, win, winfully, like, oh, easy, yeah, I'm just going to be done with skiing. And then I realized, like, man, ski racing was awesome, and that was yeah. me. That that was a lot of my identity, and I walked away from it. So anyway, um, retirement was cool. It, it was just hard, but I didn't recognize how hard it was till like several years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always tell everybody that like recognize where you are in your life and recognize that ski racing will always be a part of it, mm-hmm. but it's also becomes part of your identity, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Um, so what did you all that move on to retired? Pardon? What did you move on to? Um, well, I always think uh, athletics and entrepreneurship have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went back to school and did my undergrad in uh, finance and marketing. So I, I think when uh, this goes back to that retirement thing, when people retire, they're like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you think about it. When, when you're a ski racer, you have to plan your own career. You've got to have goals. you got to exercise. you got to work out. A lot of that goes really well with entrepreneurship, like building your own business plan. Like, hey, here's a here's a passion I want to follow. How do I do it? Mm-hmm. And uh, so entrepreneurship worked really well for me. So I started, I think, of, I think I'm on my fifth business right now. Wow. <laughs> retired and some of them I left and moved on and they're seven-figure companies that have gone on to do other things that I founded. And I think uh, like ski racing and just how we plan and, and we goal – uh, plan our goals for what we want to do in a career does says a lot about our ability to, to run small business. So I always tell people of any age, like when you're going through the ski team, even like planning your goals, researching, training yourself, tuning your skis, all of those little skills you think don't really matter. They do matter in the real world when you want to start a business. Um, and I've recognized that from ski racing. People are like, man, you really got after that business. I'm like, yeah, just like I really got after training because I wanted to be the best. Yeah. Um, and that really is a, a skill set that you learn ski racing and you don't think of how it correlates to the real world, but it does. Um, so I've been doing that. And then right now I do some consulting work. Um, and then I got into, uh, being a first responder somehow. Uh, (laughs) probably just the adrenaline uh, kick. You needed the adrenaline again. 
some well something about like running your own small business is cool but it's also can be stressful um but then when you work for i started uh i didn't get hired by the fire department until i was 40 and i kind of did it on a whim people like you should try this i'm like all right i'll try anything (laughs) yeah why not so i was like the oldest guy there at this academy and they called me old man but then i I <laughs> I finished with everybody else. Like I was with the twenty year olds at the end of the day. They're like, "Man, you really did good. How do you do that?" I'm like, "I don't know, man. <laughs> you just gotta keep going." Um, so anyway, I got hired by the Anchorage Fire Department, and uh, the reason I did it too is the schedule is really cool. And there's a lot of uh, ski racers that go into being a first responder or firefighter because you get uh, you only work ten days a month. Um, you get health care <laughs> uh, for all your activities you do, and then. Um, we get a lot of time off so I can go skiing and recreate and you can technically have enough time to start another business if you wanted to. So yeah, it's been cool. And you get to, I mean, you get paid to exercise all day too. So, I mean, that's great. Yeah. So you're, so you're still pretty fit. I'm guessing. Um, well I went to the, I lost 35 pounds during the, uh, fire Academy. Wow. Um, so I was a heavy guy. Definitely looked like a downhiller, uh, (laughs) going into the Academy the fire academy, but I lost 35 pounds and now I'm down to my more, my technical skiing weight <laughs> as yeah. we would call it. Yeah. Well, um, so you were a, you were a downhiller and a super gear. Um, I looked at, I looked at your fist results and, uh, oh my <laughs> they're still up. Um, you had, uh, you had a win in, in, in an Italian downhill one year. Um, and I think, I think that was the first, uh, black American win in Europe. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, you had some Europa Cup starts. You were pretty solid. And, you know, when you, the year you retired in 2004, you had the, a fourth in Super G and a sixth in downhill at U.S. Nationals. Um, mm-hmm. So, but, um, well, I'm, I am curious how um, it ended and, and why, did, were you not named back to the U.S. team? Um, yeah, so if I would have needed to win the national championships, and I, I think I lost. I mean, I had, I had edged out. Um, oh yeah, I had edged out either Bodie or Darren, and then Dane Spencer came in at the end and pushed me out of the podium position to remain on the team by like oh, eight hundredths of a second. You know? oh. But I'm one of those stories where you lose by like whatever that is, sixteen inches. <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't like a forced retirement either. Um, I was just at a season in my life where I wanted to like. Um, share my life with someone because I I wouldn't say ski racing can be lonely sometimes, but uh, you're always just on your own. So it wasn't like I was burnt out either. It was just time where I wanted to move on in in a different segment of life or a different season. Um, but I wouldn't say I left like angry or like I'm out, can't stand you people. Uh, yeah. uh, it was bittersweet, but you know I was I was also dating a young lady at the time for like two years and the travel was hard and i was like yeah i'm old enough i kind of want to move on a little bit mm-hmm. so i i blissfully retired i say gotcha. at that point so i do want to talk about your ski career because you you have a very unique experience in ski racing mm-hmm. in that um you are african-american and there are just such a lack of diversity in ski racing and mm-hmm. what was was that hard did you notice it at all um what kind of what sorts of differences do you think you experienced in ski racing um 
Well, it's been interesting because lately I've been getting like phone calls and texts from people from across the country asking me, you know, what my two cents are on on, on what's going on presently. And mm-hmm. I can definitely see like what's going on is is stressful on our community. It's stressful in society. And it, um, also with how politics are lately, I always call things a, a, what at least in debate we'd call. I was in, I was in the university debate team and we call mm-hmm. it a false dichotomy, which means uh, everyone wants to force you to either or scenarios like either with us or you're against us mm-hmm. and a false dichotomy exists when uh they only create a scenario where you, you're either a or b um and where i bring this into ski racing is, is and just uh, if i could summarize where i think we are as a culture is i think we've lost some ability to be grace oriented as i call it mm-hmm. uh so when i was ski racing i'd have um people come up and ask me questions that i think might upset most people um, and I recognize at an early age that being the only black American, I'm going to get a lot of people who probably aren't used to seeing, uh, people of color on the ski hill ask me questions. And classically, these questions would be highly racist and bigoted, but I took an, a perspective of grace saying, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very assume nice that, they, yeah, they're really just naive and they have no clue. Um, how to even address me or talk to me. And I'm a human and a ski racer like everybody else. So it's not like I'm elitist or just because I'm the only black skier doesn't mean I'm um, um, exceptional or any different. Like I put my downhill spandex suit on the same way everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm scared in the start just like everybody else. Um, And if you're not scared, there's something wrong. I always tell people that. It's like you got to be a little nervous. You're like, oh my good, we could die. But nonetheless, um, people would ask me questions and I would answer with grace. And um, like one time I was in Europe and I had a national team outfit and they were asking me if I got it on eBay, you know. Okay. And I was like, hey, they're like, did you get that on eBay? And, I'm, and you could even say like the pride in you would say, no, I didn't get it on eBay. I'm on the national ski team. But you kind of got to meet people where they are. And say, well, first I said, yeah, <laughs> I got it on eBay. <laughs> like, it's not even, you can't even get them yet. And they laughed and they, they, they were like, oh, really? I know they're on eBay. I'm like, well, they're not. I'm just on the national ski team and here skiing. They're like, oh, you, you ski race. I'm like, yeah, I ski race. Then I had to say, hey, do you want to take a, you know, let's go up the lift together. Let's take the tram up. And I started a conversation with them. And I think in our society today, people aren't willing to uh, have a conversation about it. They're just awkward. And they avoid it uh-huh. where I believe in this idea of proximity and uh, immersion, meaning not we always have these ideas about let's be more diverse. But I would say bring people into the sport and immerse them, immerse them in the sport um, and let them see the sport for what it is, which is people love gravity and they love this sport. I've only had a couple of times in my ski career where people were, you know, I use the word pretty easily, but some people were like, oh, that word seems so coarse, but like. You know, I had someone say, oh, I'm not going to touch that nigger's skis. And that that person was let go. <laughs> they, were, yes. they were fired eventually. Yes. Um, but uh, when someone says that, I usually, well, my first reaction usually is to laugh. Because I'm like, oh, my goodness, no one really uses that word anymore, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but usually when someone says that, they're trying to elicit a response. So just like um, when you see rioting and picketing in the um, – the fighting we have between um, law enforcement and people protesting, everyone's kind of inciting something. They're waiting for someone to throw a spark or to throw the first Molotov mm-hmm. or to volley the first throw, where historically the civil rights leaders were very peaceful people. 
who wanted an outcome and they're willing to do so peacefully by, you know, doing it quietly, but still um, being patient. Um, so where I'm going with this is that I think in my ski career, I've had people ask me a lot of questions and it's important to me at a young, at a young age, I realized like I'm going to, I'm on the threshold. I'm, I'm a juxtaposition. I'm a fence walker, as you call it. And I think it was a, um, a God-given privilege to be able to do that in my ski racing career. So I had 10, 12, 15 buddies I've traveled the world with, um, and I impacted the way they view black Americans everywhere mm-hmm. I went in the world as a ski racer and certainly representing my country on the national team. Um, I was the representative for black Americans. And so for every time I interacted with someone, uh, whether they were um, naive, racist, or bigoted, I made an impact on them. I know I did because um, how I treated them, um, how I spoke to them, um, affected their ability to change the perception they have about black Americans. And I think we're kind of in a, in a perception battle a little bit like, are they violent? Are they a violent people? Um, if I see a black person walking towards me in the alley, um, should I be nervous? Um, certainly if I see one in the ski lift line, what do I do? And, uh, you can talk to like Eric Holmer or, uh, Jeremy Transu and they will certainly tell you I was the outgoing black dude <laughs> that would gladly take the gondola ride with anybody, a stranger and just talk to them and really want to make sure they're enjoying the sport. And I think that yeah. made a significant impact on people. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's, it sounds like, um, you carried this, this sort of, maybe, maybe it was even some pressure in, in terms of having to represent, um, a whole race, but just by yourself. Did you ever feel that or ever feel that you were, uh, trying to be, you know, an article I read was like, you know, there's the tiger woods of golf who, who kind of oh, yeah. showed, showed how like, like, you know, that black Americans can ski race. Like, did you ever think about that? Was that ever tough on you? Yeah, I, I yeah, there was a little bit of pressure, um, but it kind of helped. You're in the start gate, and it's like, race are ready. You know, it's like, what are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on being fast or like what everyone thinks? Yeah. And that gave me a lot of mental resolve. And I think the most poignant uh, part of my career was when I had a, the National Brother of Skiers had a, uh, had a meeting in Park City, and I was riding up the chairlift with a – she had to be 70 years old. And I looked at her, and she was weeping. And uh, – sorry. Um, she was weeping, and I didn't know what to – I was like, are you okay, ma'am? And she was from uh, – I think she was from Georgia, and she ski races – or she just skis. And she's like, I've never seen a – a person of color in a national ski team uniform before. Cause when I grew up, I wasn't allowed to ski. Um, mm. and, uh, that, that was a, one of my toughest chairlift rides ever. Uh-huh. Um, just recognizing the privilege. I, I take it for granted sometimes what I did. Cause I was just having fun skiing as fast as I could and tell you how people who, um, didn't have the privileges I did to ski race. Um, and the lady held my hand. <laughs> like she reached across the chair. Well, it must have. It hand. must have felt good to be kind of. Oh, you must have felt proud, maybe. Uh, yeah, it blew my mind because I didn't. I just didn't put it together that it mattered until someone who didn't have the ability that I do um, to tell me is like, "Hey, I couldn't ski because I was because I was a person of color." And now you have this ski team uniform on, and I didn't even know you were going to ride the chairlift with me. And I see um, a complete um, paradigm shift in ski racing by seeing you here. 
And it was like, to even, I'm like 40. It happened 20, 20 plus, 20 plus years ago. And it still crushes me, um, to be able to have an impact on, Uh on someone who tried so hard to enjoy the sport, but couldn't. And to see me, uh, in that, at that caliber, um, brought her to tears and it's early brings me to tears now. Cause I'm like, Oh man, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> until, yeah. until Jimmy, you asked me, I was like, Oh yeah. Um, so there was, there were certain, certain circumstances like that. And, um, there were certainly people that asked a lot of questions. They just asked questions, the whole chairlift ride, mm-hmm. um, about me and like, how do you get here? What they were just perplexed. Um, mm-hmm. but there was certainly a lot more pressure sometimes when I'd see a uh, black American skiing, watching me race. Because they wanted to know how I was going to do. Like, you're going to win. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is a Noram. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did that, and I'd come into the finish, and they would just be ecstatic. Like, oh my goodness, look at him, look at him. <laughs> uh, and so that was always cool to, um, to. They'd show up at random ski areas and see me race. Like, I didn't know they'd be there. They'd be in the finish. And my buddies would say, "Hey, your dad's here." I'm like, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm like, not, not every black dude you see in the audience. Is like that. However, it, to their own to their own merit, I, my dad did surprise me at a ski race once in Utah. So I had all these people saying, "There's some black guy in the finish. It's probably Andre's dad." And I'm like, "You guys, not every black guy is my my father." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I came down in the finish. It was my dad. That's cool. So, uh, <laughs> That's cool. We had a good joke about yeah. that. But, um, so this this kind of leaves us. Um, you know, I, my coaches over the years always go, you know, you can talk as much as you want about the outside ski, but until you do it, I don't really care how much you talk about it. The same thing with this, (laughs) like, um, you know, we could talk about the lack of diversity, but you know, I, I fully believe that it's, um, and I'm sure you feel the same way that, um, it'll only improve the sport to have different kinds of people in it. Um, and so how do we, how do we take that action? Do you have any, um, you know, how, there's this winter for kids nonprofit, um, that, uh, they're doing in New Jersey, getting, um, inner city kids of, of color out to the slopes. Um, but do you have any ideas about that, about action? Yeah. I've been out to, uh, winter, winter for kids, uh, several times now. And like, I'm blown away. Like they, they have an amazing program where all these kids from all over show up and, and ski just to enjoy the sport. There's Nordic, there's snowboarding and there's Alpine. <clears throat> Um, and the question you asked, I mean, it's the, what are they called? The $64 million question or the, I don't know how much it'd be worth, but yeah. I mean, I, I, I down to my core really care about the sport and I want to see it grow. And I think it's in, it's in, uh, it's in somewhat of a decline. Yeah. Um, some people will judge a sport and say, Oh, it's a white sport. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Cause I owned the sport when I did it. I'm like, this is my culture. This is my sport. Mm-hmm. I don't care what people say. And I owned it. Um, so I think the one thing too is uh, people would always ask me like, "Hey, how come there's not more Black Americans?" And I'm like, "Well, if you look at demographics, well, obviously a lot of minorities are in urban areas and not Wilson, Wyoming, where I lived. Uh, <laughs> so they need to um, understand that it's possible to do a ski vacation and um, get exposed to winter sports at a less um, costly price. And I get that, and that's not easy for everyone to do. However, where the data is wrong is like there are still far more um, middle class and upper class black Americans today than there ever has been. So mm-hmm. it's not like it always, you know, people say, oh, well, let's get inner city kids to do it. That is one segment we can target, yes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I know um, black American families that make, you know, half a million dollars a year and their kids play basketball or they golf. 
And I'm like, hey, you should go to Vail. <laughs> like, yeah. Or better, like fly to Val for a weekend. Like go to Teen, um, go to Courchevel or go somewhere and change your optics on what you think of winter sports. Because it's not just, I mean, it's to me, it's almost winter sports altogether. Like, hey, try hockey. Try anything in the winter. <laughs> like, yeah. you, like, it's fun. Um, <clears throat> so the other thing, too, is like um, – like people need to see the faces of people that are of minorities in the, so let me, get, let me rephrase that. Basically, if you're a black kid and you see Tiger Woods or you see, um, um, Serena Williams, LeBron, LeBron James, you know, yeah. like LeBron James or even the Williams sisters, you're like, Oh, that's cool. I'm going to try that. We have no face right now for that in ski racing or Alpine. So they're like, I'm not going up to the, I'm not going to Park City. I'm not going to the Wasatch mountains and go skiing, but, I'm always encouraging, like, you, it'll change your life. Like, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Um, so I guess there's different tiers of how you could tackle that question, Jimmy. But um, I think what um, Winter for Kids is doing is is starting at a grassroots because all those kids are getting exposure to winter sports. And they even if 5% of them eventually start ski racing or enjoying winter sports, that is the direction that we should go and support. Um, but in general – I also think that winter for kids is also just bringing kids to the mountain, like yeah, kids, exactly. um, whether yeah. their parents go or not. And I, I think the U.S. ski team could look at like just bringing kids to the ski areas, kids in general, because parents are like, I don't want to go. Well, we're going to take your kids anyway. So I think instead of looking at it from a, uh, a strictly diversity perspective, as much as like we want kids on the hill of any color, <laughs> yeah. um, that will actually help our sport because we just need people exposed to the sport. Um, and I think the more you work on building a, a big, broad pipeline like that, the easier it is to have a larger and more effective, um, high end pipeline when you need it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's, you know, it comes down to the grassroots and, and I think that's part of why ski racing is kind of slugging along. It's not really growing. And as you said, it may even be declining. Like, uh, mm-hmm. we need, we need to get as many people involved as possible, make it as accessible as possible. Um, yeah. And, and now as we, as we end the, um, as we start to near our end, um, of the interview, are there, is there any kind of closing comments you would have, um, or, or anything you want to kind of, uh, any ideas or things you want to promote? My Jerry Springer's final thoughts. He was so good at the, <laughs> um, um, well, sometimes there, there's, uh, people have difficulty when they watch the news and like, how, how do you respond to all this? And um, I always tell people to be as um, persistent and proximic as they can to um, anyone they know that's a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell people that cause um, I'm always reaching out and hanging out with people that I'm probably uncomfortable with. And I've always done that my whole life. Uh, I was, I was always called uh, a fence walker. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm two races, like my mom is white, my dad's black. So I naturally, I was born to recognize respect and understand both races and cultures. Um, but I think if people are always asking me like, what, what do I do? What do I think? Like, how do I feel about all this? And I always say, go with your gut, but then also be courageous in pursuing conversation and relationship with people. And I, and I think you won't go wrong with that. Because uh, some people are a little worried about, oh man, what do I do? What do I say? I'm like, hey, don't don't be sh- don't beat yourself up and be shamed into fear about saying the wrong thing. But be authentic when you talk to people, and be graceful, and you'll be okay. Yeah, you really will. 
Well, well I got to um, be honest. I, I, I was a little nervous for this interview and I didn't know exactly <laughs> how to, how to phrase questions and stuff like that. Um, but I, I really want to thank you because it, it seemed you just opened, opened up for us and, and had an incredibly honest and real and awesome dialogue with us. And I want to thank you for that. And before we leave, I have to ask you Eastern mountains or Western mountains. Oh my, that's such a loaded question. I think my connections, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Question. Um, well, I'm a Chugach guy. So Alaska, so mm. it's, kind of the west coast but then not it's more like the north i don't even know how you would say that you know the arctic and i have a lot east coast so i'm trying to do the political thing uh <clears throat> i don't know man on a good day mount bachelor is pretty awesome yeah on a good day otherwise it's called mount bad weather because oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> but i've had some really cool times out in lake placid so yeah <sighs> so i didn't see i didn't even answer that question didn't even answer it. It's okay. Yeah, see, that was pretty good, right? That was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll let you off the hook. Okay. Um. All right. And uh, I I never answer the question either because I'm supposed to be an unbiased journalist, just getting the facts. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, it can be tough sometimes. So I get it. But that was a good. That was a good question. Uh, there was one thing I was going to add too. Is that I would encourage you if you if you're okay as a journalist to um give people my email address or my phone number because um, mm. I'm always an open book for anyone who has any questions at any time about race, uh, ski racing, what do I say, what do I do? Um, that's just my calling, I think, um, being a skier. So uh, put my email address up if you can or want to and my certainly my phone number because um, I'm in this for the long haul and I like want us as a community of skiers to be successful. Well, I pre I appreciate that. I'm sure everyone, it's a it's a cool move of you. I will uh, I'll uh, put your email in the in the in the afterward or whatever. Um, but yeah, thanks for being on the show. It's so awesome. Looking forward to it. Really keep up the awesome work, man. I'm proud of you. That interview with Andre was truly a gift. So, from from me and from all my listeners, I'm sure. Thank you, Andre. Andre mentioned that he would answer any of your questions. No question is off limits, as he explicitly said. Um, and his number is 907-444-9510. And I'll throw it in the description, too. His email is horton.andre at gmail.com. That's H-O-R-T-O-N dot Andre, A-N-D-R-E at gmail.com. I will throw that in the podcast description as well. So seriously, reach out to him. We move on over to Benjamin Alexander next, who also has a fascinating story. But before that, I want to talk to you about a sponsor of the show. Today's episode is proudly, once again, sponsored by the ADL Ski Club. The ADL is reinventing the ski club experience for the modern era with huge gear discounts, listen up, and small pro-style trips to unique ski destinations all over the world. The club is happy to announce, this is new, listen up, the launch of their famous Vengen Dream Trip next January to Switzerland with American downhill legend AJ Kitt. Twelve lucky travelers will experience the best of the Swiss Alps and get to go behind the scenes 
on the classic Lauberhorn downhill. Sounds pretty sweet. I've never been to Wengen, but I watch it religiously every year. It's their first dream trip of 2021, and you can find all the details at www.adlskiclub.com. adlskiclub.com. Check it out. Now, without further ado, the Jamaican speedster, Benjamin Alexander. All right. Well, uh, Benjamin Alexander, uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. I've been uh, listening to a lot of your podcasts, especially recently after the invitation. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I'm excited to get started. Um, we've talked a little bit beforehand, and you have a crazy story. It's an awesome story, and I'm excited to tell it. Um, basically, you are, in a nutshell, trying to make the Olympics uh, for Team Jamaica in 2022, right? Exactly. Um, okay. Well, you're actually speaking to the entire ski team. There's no one else in Jamaica <laughs> trying to do this. <laughs> gotcha. Well, we got to get to um, where you are now. But before that, let's go over um, your early life and how you um, like, tell me about your first time you went skiing. How, how, how did you get up to that point? Uh, first time I went skiing would have been uh, family day or President's Day weekend 2016 in Whistler. Uh, at the time, I was a full-time DJ and uh, I'd been flown up to Whistler from Brazil for a quote-unquote swingers party. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll, we won't get into the details on that, but you can <laughs> kind of figure it out. And in between all of the madness, I decided that I wanted to get a ski lesson in. Uh, two months prior, I had been invited to a heli ski trip by a dear friend of mine, Tom, and uh, had never skied before. So I was part of the contingent of people that either had never skied before or could not ski that kind of terrain. Mm -hmm. The heli ski lodge was Mica in British Columbia. And we just had like the time of our lives up there. Uh, we were partying every day. We flew in DJ equipment. The uh, the heli lodge is like like the four seasons. It's not kind of like your Alaska setup where it's like a fishing shack in the summer and then a, a makeshift heli lodge in the winter. It's like full on five seasons. And so just had the best time, but I wasn't part of the skiing contingent. So I made it kind of clear to myself right there and then that I would not come back to my current as I was skiing. So gotcha. I had the opportunity to ski in Whistler in 2016 and just kind of kept throwing myself down this same green slope um all day long I managed to get my number of falls down from like 20 down to 17 down to like 14 i think i finished the day with seven falls on this one slope uh, and then from there it's just wow. been like uh, a crazy progression um mm -hmm. that was my first exposure i didn't get to ski again for another another year went to mammoth the following year mm -hmm randomly connected with this crazy guy who kind of forced me down a black slope on my third day of skiing and that complete yard sale but i didn't die and i kind of got the the, the feel for speed yeah kept pushing myself down down the black slopes that over that trip for three or four days that i skied there and just really got the bug as soon as i figured out that yeah. i could go fast with nothing other than the, the, the kind of the force of gravity yeah. i was just hooked from the moment yeah um so where let's let's uh start with um where where were you born and um uh and and, and all and all that like where, how'd you grow up and uh um where are your parents from yep so uh born about an hour north of uh of london a mm -hmm. small town that's only famous for having tom york of radiohead being born there there's nothing else interesting <laughs> about my town 
Uh, I spent the first 18 years of my life there. Uh, my mother was born and raised in England, uh, in London, sorry. She's uh, completely white. My father was born in Jamaica and came across to England at the age of six. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to university in London uh, and then kind of kind of left Europe completely right at that point. Uh, three days after my last exam, kind of got out of Dodge, went to Asia with a one-way ticket to kind of pursue a, a different life. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, you mentioned to me, you said you're going to Asia, new life, all your other friends are doing finance, um, yeah. and then you end up in Asia doing finance? Yeah, so back then, I graduated in 2003. I studied electronic engineering at mm-hmm. UCL, and back then, finance was kind of like the big daddy that was the big brain drain. All the smart people from all of the engineering and science disciplines would go to finance because that's where the, the money was. Mm-hmm. Now the big drain, the brain drain is obviously technology. Um, and I just couldn't see myself jumping on the tube every morning and going to uh, Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch every day. It just didn't didn't seem like a happy thing for me. So I went to Asia. I messed around and did a bunch of things. I modeled for a while. I really? worked a technology company. And then just like the rest of my friends, I ended up in finance in Asia. Mm-hmm. And so how did you get into DJing? Um, so in, two, in the year 1999, mm-hmm. uh, this was before YouTube... Um, media wasn't flying around the internet like it is this day, these days. There's a, there was a thing in England called pirate radio. I mean, it happens all over the world, but in London especially, there were lots of particularly smaller ethnic groups that will take over a tiny spectrum of the FM band and buy some kind of FM broadcasting equipment and illegally broadcast whatever music they want to do. Uh, and so... Friends of mine that were going backwards and forwards to London, as, as my family were, would go down to their section of London, record stuff from this pirate radio, bring it back to my part of the country, Northamptonshire, and we would listen to these tapes over and over and over again. And there was this, this energy that I'd never experienced before in music that we were getting from these tapes that were being recorded from pirate radio. And you couldn't go online and find this stuff. Mm-hmm. The only way to experience this was on pirate radio, and pirate radio stations basically only had a a transmission range of a couple of miles. So you had to be in that part of the city to hear it, mm-hmm. or you needed to be able to go up to the nightclubs and find these DJs and hear it. And I wasn't drinking age at that time, so I didn't have that option. And I was just hooked, this music hooked me. And so the only way for me to kind of recreate that energy and that vibe was to go and buy turntables myself, and then to go out individually and buy the records. We, the kids call it vinyl now, but we called it records back then. Yeah. Um, and just recreate that experience myself. And that's how I got into DJing in the year 2000. Uh, within a short period of time, uh, I think about a year, I was DJing myself on some pirate radio stations in London. Uh, I got a few gigs around the country. And then, unfortunately, the scene and the type of music that I was listening to attracted a lot of violence, a lot of negative energy. And so I, I found myself caught in situations that I didn't think were so smart. There were kind of like gunfights and knife fights at really? clubs. and. Uh, I, yeah, I remember one instance where uh, there was even t- a tear gas canister thrown into the crowd. And at this time, I was you know, studying at one of the most prestigious universities in the daytime, but kind of hanging out with all of these, yeah, just people that didn't really have the same kind of world view, world uh, like aspirations that I did. And I just, uh-huh. I gave up, but slowly started to pick up the DJing thing again later in life as when I was in Asia, as I said before. Mm-hmm. And, and then how did you end up in Brazil? Was that DJing? Yeah, I was doing a tour of Brazil. So I did uh, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. 
Uh, and this, as I said, this was 2016, so this was before I even had had, had skied on a mountain. So I was just down there, just a DJ. Um, and the, the the booking request came in, and I was flown up to Whistler. I think I spent four or five days there. Uh, skied two of them, went out on a sled on another day, and the other days were just recovering from the parties. So you were, I mean, you were just a, a DJer, a partier. I mean, you were a lot of different things, but skiing yeah. skiing was just something that came into your life out of chance, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. So if it wasn't for this heavy skiing trip uh, in 2015 that my friends went to, and so, you know, I, I've been going to Burning Man every year for the past 10 years. Uh, I DJ there. I help program the DJs that perform there, at least at our stage. Um, and this year, in, 20, in 2015, about 30 of us, our Burning Man family, went to this heli ski lodge. And a big chunk of my friends are professional skiers, former skiers, some of uh, sponsored skiers. Um, and it just it, it never hit my radar before. I had basically lived in summer for the past 15 years. Uh-huh. I left England in 2006 and never experienced a summer, a uh, winter, sorry, mm-hmm. since this winter when I got into skiing. Um, and so it just, yeah, totally came at me sideways. And you were hooked. I mean, you just kept doing the runs on the greens. Yeah, kept doing the runs on the greens. Again. Then, I, then I kind of upgraded to the blacks on my third day. I have a funny video of me falling down a, uh, a slope on my third day in Mammoth. Um, I then went back to Revelstoke later that year, 2017, for two or three days of additional training. And my ninth day of skiing ever was heli skiing back at Micah. Um, I'm going to say, if I'm going to be honest, it was probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. Trying to transition from uh, how to ski on a groomer that I'd been doing in my eight days previously to bottomless powder was just like a completely different sport. And I struggled like crazy. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And then, so when did you kind of say, hey, maybe I could uh, race, maybe I could do something out of this? So I think we're all familiar with the movie Cool Runnings, right? Yeah. The Jamaican Boston team movie, John Candy's last movie that he made. And so obviously being of Jamaican heritage, whenever I'm near any kind of winter sport, there is that joke attached to it, like the Jamaican on ice, the Jamaican skier, mm. the Jamaican bobsleigh team. And so really it just started as a joke. So a couple of friends of mine set up an event called Send It that takes place at uh, Revelstoke. Mm-hmm. It is a tech entrepreneurial conference where about 200 people gather for five days of skiing. Also includes a lot of partying, dressing up in costumes, skiing in costumes, just having a lot of fun. And I got the ability to attend this event. 2018 was the, was their inaugural event. So the joke kind of started there, like, you know, Jamaican skier, Jamaican bobsleigh team. Mm-hmm. I then flew from West, from Revelstoke to Korea, South Korea, just to attend the Olympics in February of 2018. Uh, and it just kind of shocked me that we only had three athletes that were re- representing Jamaica, which is kind of crazy because for such a small island, in terms of medals won per cap, Jamaica is right there at the top of the table in the summer games, mm-hmm. but basically has zero representation. Um, I think... Errol Kerr, who skied for Jamaica in 2010 in the Vancouver game, ski cross, mm-hmm. uh, so not an alpine skier. Um, he finished ninth, which was an awesome achievement. Wow. He's based out of Tahoe. That was the best finish for any Caribbean athlete ever in the winter game. So there's a lot to be done, and there's obviously a lot of athletic talent that's out there mm-hmm. uh, in the Caribbean that could apply themselves to winter sports if they 
if they had the opportunity to. So to continue to answer the question, I then kind of got the bug. So skied in Revelstoke in uh, 2018, went to see the Winter Games in February of 2018, okay. spent a week in Niseko and skied like Rizutsu, Kororo, all of the mountains around, Hanazono, all of the mountains around uh, uh, Niseko. Mm-hmm. Uh, then had another tour of South America in 2018 where I spent three months down there, climbed Chimborazo, did a bunch of cool things, diving in the Galapagos. And ended up skiing Patagonia, both sides, Chile and Argentina, driving thousands of miles around Chile to find snow, just like completely hooked, skied seven yeah. mountains uh, down there. And then so when I came back to Revelstoke for this event again, send it at the start of 2019, a couple of friends of mine decided that instead of paying for a hotel for a week, why not get a, you know, a, a sick house for, for an entire month? It's going to cost about the same. And so going into this event, I had this kind of like pipe dream of if I can survive a month of skiing and if I don't kill myself, if I don't crash, if I don't uh-huh. break a leg or do something really <laughs> gnarly like that because I love to go fast, yeah. then if I can survive it, then maybe this kind of crazy idea has legs. And at this event, I got the opportunity to ski with uh, Gordon Gray, uh, mm-hmm. former former solid skier. I think he's based out of the Seattle. Mm-hmm. And this was maybe my 25th day of skiing ever. I'm skiing with Gordon and I said, Gordon, I have this crazy idea. I'm thinking about trying to qualify for the Olympics and representing Jamaica. And he'd never seen me ski, so he said, okay, let's ski together. Mm-hmm. At lunchtime, Gordon pulls me aside and says, okay, all right, I'm gonna be blunt, I'm gonna be brutally honest with you. Yeah. Your technique sucks. Your technique <laughs> is terrible. He said, but you don't just learn technique by osmosis. No one has taught you technique. Of course, your technique sucks. That's to yeah. be expected. We can teach you technique. He said, but the one thing I can't understand is how the hell you're keeping up with me. Like, <laughs> this is a guy that's been racing since he was like single digits. He, he raced for his county, he raced for his state. He's like, I don't understand how you're keeping up with me. He's like, you are absolutely fearless. And if you're fearless and you don't have the fear, then you have more than half the battle won. And he was the guy that was super super instrumental in helping me understand the point system, helping me kind of figure out that maybe I should go to Mount Hood in the summer, which I did last year, um, helping me figure out which discipline would suit my style best. Um, and just, you know, he's been one of many people along the way that have been super instrumental in kind of directing me and pushing me in the right direction or lending a hand or lending equipment and so forth. And so that's that was kind of like the genesis of the dream and how we got to to where I am now. That's really cool to hear. So when did you uh, reach out to the Jamaican Ski Federation? Or is, is there a Jamaican Ski Federation? How did you figure that out? There is. So after I left Revelstoke, and it's kind of interesting, um, my time at Revelstoke, so I actually extended, I extended my month-long trip and ended, stay, I ended up staying there about 40 days. I skied 37 of those days. And I'm a numbers guy, so we'll keep talking about numbers. Like you said, I worked in finance, I have like an engineering degree, so I always kind of refer to numbers. In those 37 days, I skied a total of 1.7 million vertical feet. Um, I'm I'm hitting speeds of like 67 miles an hour. You know, I'm just a beginner skier at that point. Um, I then ran around the mountain with a stopwatch and like a little like little notebook to kind of figure out how much vertical feet I could possibly ski in one day. And I timed the chairlifts, I timed my runs, I tried to figure out the best way to game the system. And I ended up skiing, for those of you that have been to Revelstoke, I ended up skiing the main chair, Stoke chair, 48 times in one day for a mountain record of 103,351 vertical feet. A mountain record. And I'm just, 
Yeah, a mountain record, yeah. And I'm just kind of like a, a bit of a lunatic like that. Anyway, so I left Rebel Stoke after having had like a, a great time skiing there. What's interesting is Rebel Stoke gets the most snow in all of North America, kind of like for, for the most part. But I was there during the driest period on record for the 10-year history of the mountain. So it was just groomer galore, which was actually a good thing for me because I learned how to go fast. I learned how to kind of like work with icy conditions instead of just chasing powder. So I, I get out of Revelstoke and now it's time to kind of do all the admin work. I, I figured out if, I, if there even was a Jamaican Ski Federation. And as I said, we've had one uh, freestyle skier before, Errol Kerr. Mm -hmm. We've never had an Alpine skier at the Olympics. And I tracked down uh, a, a guy called Richard Song, who is the president of the Jamaican Ski Federation. Mm -hmm. Now, when I first found him, he just has like a Hotmail email account. It didn't seem so professional. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know if I had the right guy. And so I sent him a message to kind of explain to him what I was trying to do. He replied back to me almost kind of disbelieving in, in, in my, my abilities or, or what I was trying to do and just kind of threw me a bunch of admin things to do, like kind of fogged me off. Mm -hmm. So I went away, did the task, came back, figured out that I could get citizenship. I'm a British citizen. Um, had never looked into getting Jamaican citizenship before this, didn't realize that it would be as easy as it was, um, and then went back to Richard. And, and Richard realized that I was serious about this. So Richard um, lives in Jamaica, mm -hmm. but he's a an English guy, 100% English, 100% well, white guy. And he said, okay, it, it's time for us to meet. Let's meet. Are you going to be in England at all this, this summer? And I looked at my schedule and very rarely in England, I said, you know, I have a four hour window where I'm going to be transiting through Gatwick Airport on the 18th of, of September. Does that work for you? I can I can extend or, or, or whatever. I can come and find you. And he's like, that's fine. No problem. So he came to meet me at Gatwick Airport. And super long story short, he too um, found himself in finance in London. He's uh, a graduate of Oxford University. Um, he, after several years of working the rat race or being part of the rat race in London, decided that there was got to be more to life. And he had been to Jamaica for a short trip a few years before and just kind of packed everything up and said, OK, I'm going to move the family to Jamaica. Um, ended up having a half Jamaican child. And in the early 90s, he wanted that child to, to try to compete for the Olympics. Richard himself had actually skied uh, for England and um, oh, really? and skied in the World Cup in 1962. Uh -huh. And so he created the Jamaican Ski Federation for Andrew Sam, okay. who is uh, who's the original skier for, the, for Jamaica. Very cool. So you got all that figured out. Um, and do you, so you, you mentioned you've done a few fist races, right? Yeah, so I had my, I've had three race meets. Mm -hmm. I went to Big Sky Montana in January. I was at Lake Louise in February and uh, went to Sun Valley in March, right before the right before Corona shut everything down. Gotcha. Uh, I was supposed to race here in Jackson and in Mammoth in the following months, but uh, yeah, I got I, I got six races, three race meets under my belt. What did, did you do? GS or slalom or what did you do? Yes. Gotcha. Is that going to be your event? I, so I, I wanted to start on GS. I have a feeling that I'm going to enjoy Super G better than GS because mm -hmm. just as I said, I have a, a penchant for speed. 
I don't think I trust myself to go full out downhill, but I'm going to walk my way towards yeah. that and see how it, how it feels. Um, the, the big interesting difference between the speed and the technical events is that the prerequisites for qualification for a B standard athlete are much stricter for the speed events than they are for the technical events okay. for safety reasons. And so for me to try to qualify for um, Super G or downhill, I would minimally need to be ranked top 500 in the world, which for someone that just started skiing in 2016 <laughs> seems like a, yeah. you know, a mammoth task. I'm not going to rule it out. I do intend to get over 400 days of skiing between now and the next Olympics, but we'll, we'll see if I can, if I can qualify for Super G, but Definitely GS is uh, is a slightly easier road to qualification. What is the uh, ranking for GS that you have to obtain? Uh, 165th points. 165th points. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's doable. It's doable. Yeah. It's absolutely doable. Uh, and hopefully I'll be in the double digits by the time we get to the Olympics. Nice. I like that. So how are you – so now I want to talk a bit about um, – you know, in in ski racing, unfortunately, there's a lack of diversity, and you stick out a bit because you are. I mean, how how would you identify yourself um, in terms of? I hate to use the term, but in terms of race, how would you identify yourself? Uh, I identify myself as mixed race. I mean, I'm 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 English, uh, English born and raised, uh, but. You know, 50% of my blood is Jamaican. My father is Jamaican. Mm -hmm. But because my father moved to Jamaica at such a young age, he's pretty much raised as an English, or I was pretty much raised as an English child. There, there weren't many Afro-Caribbean influences in my life growing up. Um, you know, the school that I went to probably only had a handful. I think there were only two other quote-unquote black kids at the school. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's interesting because mixed-race children, especially mixed-race children of my generation, um, find it hard to associate with either side. You, you kind of have one foot in both camps, mm -hmm. but you're, you're not associated with either exclusively, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Is that, was that hard? No. I mean, I, I didn't really experience crazy racism as a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. And so it, it just was what it was. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of fortunate that I grew up in that kind of sheltered environment. Um, and so, no, I, 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 I can't say it was hard. Okay. And so why do you think there is such a, such a lack of diversity in ski racing? Do you think that, um, like, what barriers do you think there are to, um, to other people besides just, you know, white people being in ski racing? Do yeah, sure. So I, one thing that I've definitely noticed at all of my ski race meets is that there is the kind of cookie cutter type yep. of person that's in ski racing. Yeah. They are the person that has been skiing since they were two, two, three or four. Uh, they are white definitively. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are blessed either geographically. So they live at the, you know, with a short drive of a mountain or they are blessed financially and that they can get access to the mountains frequently enough to kind of stoke a passion and build that passion. Um, why is there not so much diversity in ski racing? You know, I think there's not that much diversity in skiing or winter sports full stop. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really where the problem is. Um, and I think we need kind of like a, a Tiger Woods moment where we have a 
very successful uh, person of color uh, that does the sport well, that will bring other people into it, um, whether it's like the the James Stewart of uh, uh, motocross or something like mm-hmm. that, the, the yeah. standout individual that shows that people from other races can do well at, at a sport. And I don't have any delusions of grandeur that I could ever be a Tiger Woods in, the, in, in, in ski racing. Yeah. But I think a big part of my story is that for someone that didn't have any of those boxes ticks and didn't start skiing until I was 32, not too, 32, um, didn't live near a mountain, grew up in a very basic working class background, so it wasn't financially blessed to be able to get to the two mountains. I think if I'm able to do something with this, qualify for the Olympics and have a respectable finish, I think hopefully my story can show that there is uh, that, that the sport is open for people that are not white or people that didn't ski in their you know in their teenage years or, or older. So that's what I'm hoping um, I can do here. I like that. Yeah. Um, you, and uh, I, hopefully we can get you as much publicity as possible. So we get as many eyes seeing that, you know, anyone can do this. Um, and yeah. and my question also is um, what sorts of barriers because ski racing is this is this niche sport. And it seems to me like there are, are so many barriers um, to somebody, no matter how they look, no matter their background, just in terms of like, um, getting knowledge, getting coaching, getting to the mountains. What do you see as the biggest barriers for you right now in, in terms of becoming a better ski racer and jumping into the sport? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, ski racing is an incredibly technical sport, mm-hmm. whether that is the technique of how to properly arc a turn, whether that's the technique of how to assess a course and choose your line down the, down the course, whether that is the technique of waxing your skis or tuning your skis uh, or, or all of the other things that go into modifying boots to mean that you can properly apply pressure to your skis. There's a lot of knowledge that needs to be learned there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so myself, I've been super fortunate in that I have a lot of people uh, that have been helping out that have kind of given me hand-me-down equipment. I'm, uh, I'm waiting for Steve Nyman to give me a hand-me-down race suit. Nice. Um, and all of these kind of things. Yeah. Um, the, the barriers to entry are just in that it's a very, very technical sport. And I think for the most part, the kids that start super young have a lot of those things handled for them yeah. um, by their coaches, by their parents, to the point where when they have to think about it themselves, when they might start first traveling away from home and away from their parents for race meets, it's already second nature. For someone coming into the sport at such a late, late age, all of these things are, are brand new for me. I had a I had a horrible injury that I was working with during my uh, time up in Canada when I had my race uh, at Lake Louise mm-hmm. because I just put a booster strap onto my ski boots. I love the feeling that I was getting from the booster strap and it gave me the confidence to crank every single one of my uh, straps much tighter. Yeah. But I'd crank the bottom strap like two or three clicks tighter than I needed to and just destroyed the side of my foot for like three weeks. Ugh. That's not a mistake that anyone that's been skiing like from an early age would ever make because they would understand these things. It would just be drilled into them. Mm. I'm kind of having to walk into all these brick walls myself to figure out that those are brick walls and you can't walk through them and to figure out my way around them or over them. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a beautiful example. I mean, there's so there's so many things. It would be cool if there was... Well, we um, we talked a bit about uh, that uh, that ski racing guide um, that, yeah. that I sent you, but it would be nice if there was more easily accessible information 
to get into ski racing and more and more avenues. Definitely. Totally. I mean, I, um, I have a weekly call with the founding member of the 1988 Jamaican state team, Dudley Stokes. Yeah. He was the pilot. Uh, if you remember the movie, he was the pilot. And I mean, Very imagine cool. his situation. Bobsledding is an even more niche sport and still is an even more niche sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you are an outspoken person that's coming into the ski racing community, there is just so much love and support within inside of the community, especially for someone like me that is nowhere near competitive right now. The amount of cheering that I get from people that have never seen me before, but you know, I'm the crazy guy from Jamaica and the <laughs> six foot six guy that is 37 years old, whereas everyone else is in their teenage years or early twenties, I totally stand out. But the love and the support and the advice that I get from coaches, um, the uh, the officials up at the start gate kind of giving me uh, encouragement. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of love inside of the ski racing community. And I, I think that if anyone is getting into the sport, everyone is everyone has been in that position of that beginner at one stage and people are willing to help out the people that are at the bottom working their way up definitely i felt that a lot in in, this, in the community well that's really good to hear that that makes me yeah. feel good um gives me some faith in the ski racing community that is good to hear totally. well one of the interesting things is i randomly reached out on reddit uh last year into the ski race, you know, the R-Ski uh, or R-Ski race and said, oh, hey, I've never done I would that. like to find out how do I call it, how do I get down to 140 fist points because they just change it from 140 to 160, but mm-hmm. back to that time it's 140. And obviously the internet being the internet, you have a lot of stupid answers. Uh, and then one guy, a guy called Mike out of Canada, he said, hey, I- I'm the exact type of person who can answer this question. I teach U14, U16, and a lot of my guys leave my tuition, you know, sub 140. He then proceeds to write me a 2,000-word essay on where I should train, what equipment I should have, what every part of my life between now and getting to the Olympics should look like with regards to how many races I should try and get to, what type of races I should try to get to, where I should try to live, what type of coaching I should look for, um, books that I should read on uh, sports psychology, such as uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck. And there are like lots of people out there that are just willing to help. So shout out to Mike if you're listening. Thank you for that. Shout out, Mike. Well, um, <laughs> that is really cool to hear. So as you know, because you're a listener of the podcast, um, this yep. is going to be interesting, this last question. Um, Eastern Mountains or Western Mountains? I have not skied on the East Coast yet, um, and so I have to say Western Mountains. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you. Um, most people will say you don't need to make it east. The mountains are smaller, and the weather is worse, um, and there's less snow. Uh, but it, it is a bit of a uh, – it makes you gritty to spend some time in the east. Yeah. So, oh, I believe it. So if, if, you, if you want to, um, you, uh, you should spend some time in Vermont. Uh, definitely. Okay. That's why true races are built. Well, it was great to have you on the show. Thanks for telling us your story. Um, I, along with I'm sure all the listeners, are rooting for you in terms of making it to the Olympics in 2022. And uh, yeah, thanks. Can I? uh, I Can. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, want to thank my buddy Tom that got me into skiing. Mm -hmm. All of the guys at Send It. The the event is called Send It Series. So listeners should check into that. Um, thanks to a couple of my sponsors. I have a few already, but looking for more. Mud Room, which is a store here at Jackson, uh, mm-hmm. set up by Gov Carrington, Bodie's former ski tech. Great guy. He's been super helpful. 
Um, Headwall Sport is a, is a shop here in Jackson. The team at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, Eric and the rest of the marketing guys have been super helpful. And there's one other thing that I'm not sure if you've experienced. Have you uh, tried a product called Carve, C-A-R-V? Um, I don't think so. So it's a boot insert that in real time checks your pressure and your angulation. It connects to your phone and then a Bluetooth headset. And so I've been really? doing a lot of training with this. It really helps. They, uh, they gifted me a product when they heard about my story back in October. Super interesting. And I'm hoping that that might help democratize learning how to, it's not the beginners, but once you get past that beginner stage, learning how to properly turn, learning how to pro properly apply weight through a, through a turn, um, I, it's, I, think it, I think it could be a great product once they iron out all the kinks. That's cool. Um, and yeah, thanks for shouting out all those people. I, I, I forgot, I usually do that too. I let you um, <laughs> shout at everyone. Um, but thanks for being on the show. Awesome, thanks Jimmy. A sincere thank you to Benjamin Alexander for that interview. Uh, he sent me a note after we did the interview. He said, today was day 86 since the coronavirus shutdown and day 83 in the backcountry. Uh, he took three rest days after hitting 100 consecutive ski days. Um, but since the shutdown, he's been, you know, skinning. He's been climbing for his turns. He's hit a grand total of eight Mount Everests. He tells me 227,000 vertical feet. That's pretty epic. Now, if you want to follow his adventures, he's got tons of videos. He posts to Instagram. You can check him out at Benji.ski. So that's on Instagram, B-E-N-J-I dot ski. Check him out. No mail reading this week, um, but hopefully next week my uh, email and Instagram will be flooded because I think this is a conversation that needs to keep going, and I would love to hear all of your thoughts on this. So remember, it's in the description, but I'll remind you, ski racing this week at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Jimmy underscore who underscore. I also want to take a moment to say that nothing I say or do on this podcast represents the United States ski team. While I am named to the U.S. ski and snowboard team, Jimmy Krupka of this podcast is just simply Jimmy Krupka, the young podcaster. Now, next week is going to be, I think, a mega episode. So if you made it this far in the podcast, I'm letting you in on this secret. I'm going to try to get a lot of content out. And I can't tell you exactly why, but you'll know why when you listen to the podcast next week. So tune in. It's going to be a doozy. But until then, next Thursday, that is, I'm Jimmy Kripka. This is Ski Racing This Week, Ski Racing Media's official podcast. See you later.